Welcome back. Let's talk about God. It is that time again. Sure is. How's everybody doing? You doing good? I'm doing great. How's everybody in the room? I just talk about our listeners. I hope everybody's good. They can't talk back, but no, I just true. hope everybody's doing good. There's some somebody talking in their car right now to us. Just answer back like to a me. Psycho. I can hear you. Yes, I can. I can see you right now too. Stop playing with your phone. Pay attention. <laughs> Gosh. Does it bother you when you drive by people and they're texting? Yes. Because you're like, are they gonna run into me or Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's a little scary. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's really scary. Some folks out there probably shouldn't be driving. Uh, I'm about. I'm going to get myself no, in trouble. Just don't. Say I'm going to be quiet just because don't. I'm going to say something that it's not worth it. I'm going to get in trouble. Just don't about who I see driving. No, who, who the person do is, it. particular gender. It's not. Oh, it's like, it's, stop! It's not men. So, but you know. I didn't say that, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. Okay. What I did not I, say. I, I'm in trouble. I'm already, I'm in, oh, man. I just messed up. I'm just trying to figure out how you're going to make a pun with Habakkuk. <laughs> All I can think about is um, that woman comment was a pretty bad judgment call. Oh. Yeah, let's go. No, that, let's go. No, that didn't do it. That was aw- this, the whole book's about judgment. What? Let's go. Uh, okay, all right. I'll give the. I'll give you that. Whole book's about judgment. <laughs> God judging people and then judging those people who was judging those people. Oh, I just, love it. Help me. Y'all pray for me out there, please. Just pray for me right now. <laughs> I love it. Well, we're talking about Habakkuk today. We uh, we started like a little series that we could carry on for quite some time um, called Neglected Books of the Bible. So every now and then, uh, this is completely subjective. This is not based off of any like research on how often these books are preached. This is just if I think that they're neglected. Um, we're basically, we'll take a book of the Bible that doesn't get talked about or preached about a ton and then go through it. Okay, so in the Bible, scholars will break up the, the the division called the prophets. You've mm-hmm. heard the Bible, the Old Testament is called the law and the prophets. And there's actually more than that. The law is the first five books, books of the Bible. You have historical books like Joshua and Judges and 1 St. Samuel, 1 St. Kings, 1 St. Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ruth is there, Job. And then you have the Psalms mm-hmm. and the Proverbs, which are actually called wisdom books. So and Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon's in there. Yeah. Um, but then you get into prophetic books, and they divide them into the major prophets and the minor prophets. Mm-hmm. And it's not because some are more important than the others. It's just because they're larger. Mm-hmm. So Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are larger books. But then all those other little books um, are called minor prophets because they're very small. Mm-hmm. For example, Habakkuk is only three chapters. Yep. Yet... So if you're not careful, you'll say, well, that's not important, and I don't need to read those. And what you're wrong is they have some really rich really stuff. Really good things. As a matter of fact, Habakkuk, and we'll get there, has a verse that is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Foundational. Foundational to what you believe as a Christian 
that has been quoted several times in the New Testament was used by the Reformers in the Mm -hmm. Reformation. It was the call phrase. Mm -hmm. So now that I've got your curiosity peaked, you'll just have to wait till we get there. So yeah, this I love Habakkuk. This is one of my favorite Yeah, because, boy, I've done some preaching out of Habakkuk. There's some good preaching you can do out of this. So yeah, I'm excited about this. This is going to be good. And I want to encourage you, read Habakkuk. Like we said, it's three chapters. Like you can read this and like, three minutes, four minutes. Like you need to go read Habakkuk. It's really, really good. Maybe a little bit longer. Than Five that. minutes, six minutes, seven. I don't know how slow of a reader, how fast of a reader you are. Ten, ten fifteen. Fifteen? Well, it depends. You're not, not going to speed read. Well, it depends. I'm just talking about read it straight through. They're not shredding. If you want to go back and like meditate and Lectio Divina on it, you t- have at it. T- tell them what you do when you shred. Yeah, the shred is where you read the entire book or excuse me, the entire Bible in the month of January. In one month. It's awesome. Right. Okay. Gives you the whole story of the Bible. Anyways, I could rant on that for a while. Habakkuk's great. Go read it. It will take you some measure of time to read. All right. So All who, right. who is this cat? So let's ask um, who Habakkuk is. So Habakkuk is a prophet from the land of Judah. Um, Habakkuk, we don't really know a whole lot about him. So like some prophets will get like who their dad is or what tribe they're from or whatever else. We don't really get that information. His name's not really brought up anywhere else in the Bible. Like, it's just Habakkuk. That's all we got. He's the prophet. He's the prophet. The prophet Habakkuk. One thing that's very interesting, which we're obviously going to find out as um, as we read the Bible. One say one thing we can say about his personality is Habakkuk is very bold. So, uh, the kind of modus operandi of a prophet is that they would show up and then they would question the people. They would call the sinful people to repentance. They had asked the people, why are you doing this? Why why don't you turn back to God? They confront the people. Habakkuk is different. He shows up to God, and he kind of starts questioning God. And he's like, hey, God, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you judging these people? Why aren't you acting? Why aren't you doing? Why aren't you living according to your revealed nature? And, and, the, and the key word that you keep saying is why. Sometimes yes. he says how, but why. That's right. I, I agree with you. I, I put in my notes in preparation for today, prophets would take the message of Jehovah to the people. Habakkuk takes the complaint of the people to Jehovah. That's right. And so I think that's a little different. And here's the thing. God led him. Yeah, he did. He never condemned him. He never got after yeah. him. Yeah, God God led him. Um, and he, he said, where are you, God? Um, why did the wicked prevail? Where is your justice? He asked all these questions. And, um, and, and, and God said, ask away. Yeah. Have you ever heard, and I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself here, but maybe not, because uh, we're going to get into the book. Have you ever heard somebody say, you're not supposed to question God. Mm-hmm. You ever heard that? Yeah. Okay, that's real common. People like, you know, you're not supposed to question God. And I understand to a degree what that mm-hmm. means. And I think to a point, you don't question God. I think if you begin to question with doubt or you're questioning his ability, et cetera. We've got to take the example of Job, you know, who's excessively questioning and God kind of eventually shuts him down. Yeah, or uh, Zechariah, the mm-hmm. father of John the Baptist gets muted. Yeah, because he gets yeah he gets muted literally because yeah. he questioned God the wrong way. The same angel shows up to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and tells her, "You're going to be pregnant and carry the Son of God." She says, "How can this be? Mm-hmm. Since I'm not known a man." She's questioning, but she's not questioning the entire event like Zacharias. If Zacharias died, she just couldn't figure out. How? How's this going to work since I'm a virgin? I'm not married. I don't understand this. 
and the angel explained it to her. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to do with the question and the attitude. That's right. You can question God. And that's one of the things about Habakkuk. He teaches us is if you have the right spirit, you can cry out to God and say, why? Now, here's what I want to say right out of the gate before we even get into it. And I've said this before. That's usually the number one question that we ask when we don't like something, when we are in a crisis, why God? Why is this happening to me? Why am I struggling? Why me and not somebody else? Why God? And sometimes God gives us the answer. There are a lot of times God doesn't. That's right. Job never really got an answer. God basically told Job, be quiet. You didn't yeah. make the heavens and the earth. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have to tell you a thing. <laughs> yeah. And so he, he's like, yes, sir. Um, so if you get consumed with mm. the why, I've seen people shipwreck their faith. I've seen people turn on God. I've seen people quit on God because they were so consumed with the why. And that's not the safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. So you ask why, and then if God gives you an answer, great. If he doesn't, then you have to be able to back up and say, if he's not going to give me the answer, there must be a reason. Yeah. He is wiser than me. He is greater than me. He is God. I am a creation. He is the creator, and I'm still going to trust him. And I think that the the perfect tension here is what you find in the Psalms. It's like Job is told to just like be quiet after all of this. Habakkuk gets a really good, gracious, full answer. The Psalms are full of that tension where you might have one Psalm in which the first half of the Psalm is David or who else going, why, God? How long are you going to let this evil go unpunished? How long are you going to let me go through this? And then without any answer from God or deliberation or anything philosophical, he just switches. I don't know if you could hear that snap. He just switches gears and then... He goes into you know, but I'll trust you. You you know, you will follow through. You are good, or or whatever. And else he praises them, and they'll worship him. That's and just right. Say you're God. Exactly. So that's a really good lesson here. That's good. All right. So let's talk about um, the the when and the where of Habakkuk. So when did this occur? Where did this occur? What what's the surrounding circumstances? What is going on? What's Habakkuk trying to address? So Habakkuk was a contemporary of Nahum. Zephaniah and Jeremiah. So these are all prophets. Um, Habakkuk um, is clearly prophesying about the Babylonian invasion and then destruction of Jerusalem. Um, So Habakkuk is in the land of Judah. So if if you are aware, uh, after King Solomon, King Solomon had his son, uh, uh, Jeroboam, right? And then Rehoboam's the other guy, or he had Rehoboam. I'm getting them confused because they're almost the same name. Rehoboam. Okay. Talking about Solomon's son? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, Rehoboam um, makes a horrible, terrible decision and uh, and chooses to uh, be very ungracious to people of the land, suffer them under hard work. What I'm trying to get at is the nation splits of Israel. So you have the northern kingdom of 10 tribes called Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, called Judah. And that is where Jerusalem is from. And Judah is really, really important because that's where the kings from the line of David come from. Who Eventually we get Jesus. That's just why it's so important. Um, you have that Davidic king line. So Habakkuk is prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already fallen to Assyria. So he, he's clearly prophesying about a time in which um, Babylon or the Chaldeans uh, are going to come in and they're going to invade. And eventually he prophesies they will destroy Jerusalem. 
And we know that happens in 587 BC. So scholars think that Habakkuk is probably prophesying anywhere between 609 to 598 BC. Babylon is already put putting increasing pressure on Judah. They've already defeated Egypt, who had already begun laying siege to Judah, and now they're kind of putting this increasing military pressure on Judah. And so we know that, uh, and they gained that pressure in about uh, 604, and then we know that in roughly 600 BC, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, rebelled against Babylon. And then that's when King Nebuchadnezzar said, let's go, it's time to invade. So in about 598, 597 BC, Babylon begins to actually invade Judah. And then we know in 587, that's when he fully destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes God's people out of Jerusalem and brings them into Babylonian exile. And that's where books like uh, um, Ezekiel or Daniel take place. So I hope that wasn't too unclear, maybe clear as mud. He's prophesying a time when Babylon is going to invade and eventually destroy Jerusalem. That's my point. Um, So now we'd have to to ask this. With all this going on, what was the overall theme of Habakkuk? Before we really break down the entire structure of the book, what are the, the kind of themes? What's he getting at? So I'll give you kind of the general overview here. The overall theme of Habakkuk is of questioning God on the subject of justice, judgment, and evil. That is the main theme. Habakkuk is questioning God about justice, judgment, and evil. So Habakkuk opens the book initially being frustrated with the evil of the people of Judah, his own people, God's people. They, are, they have turned away. They're uh, into idolatry. They have turned away from God, and Habakkuk is frustrated at God. God, how are you going to let our people go unpunished? When are you going to bring judgment and justice? They have turned away from you. And so then God comforts him. He's like, yeah, Habakkuk, I am going to bring that punishment on Judah, but the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to use the people of Babylon, an even more sinful nation than Judah, a completely idolatrous nation. And then Habakkuk gets upset at this, and he's like, God, how are you going to use a nation more sinful than us to then bring judgment on us for our sin? And then God basically tells him, hey, um, I'm going to use Babylon to judge you, but then eventually I'm going to bring judgment on Babylon. So they're going to judge you. I'm going to judge them for all of their sin and everything that they've done to you. And then Habakkuk ends with this big song of praise. Yeah, and I think what we see in Habakkuk is something that's really important for us in our daily life is when you are faced with a crisis or you're seeing something you don't know the answer to and you're praying, you can look down, if you will, to worldly considerations. That's what Habakkuk was doing. I don't understand. How how are you going to use the Babylonians who are more sinful than, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're bad enough, but we are the people of God, but you're going to use them to judge us? You can look down to worldly considerations and try to figure stuff out, or you can look up. Mm. And Habakkuk started looking down, and God got him looking up. And then you start looking at God and realize God is wiser, God is smarter, God knows better. And that's that's the secret, I think, from Habakkuk is look up. even Don't look down and try to figure mm-hmm. out how this thing is going to work out from a worldly point of view. Mm-hmm. Look up from God's point of view. That's really, really good. Ultimately, we, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because I want to break down kind of more uh, specifically, but it's an issue of God's sovereignty over the nations and God's ability to do what he wants 
and use who he wants to accomplish his purposes. God is greater than any nation, whether it's Babylon or Judah or anybody. He is greater and he can do what he wants to do. Um, So what I'd like to do is, you know, I kind of gave you that general overview, but I'd like to actually break down um, what happens in order, give you a little bit more detail about this interaction between Habakkuk and God and what Habakkuk's saying, what God is saying, and break down the book in detail. And then we can spend a long while reflecting theologically on what this book is teaching us and then how we can apply it to our lives. So um, let's kind of go into a more in-depth breakdown. So we can begin, um, you know, chapter one, verse one, it's just telling us that Habakkuk's a prophet and he's prophesying. Um, Habakkuk chapter one, verses two through 11 kind of sets the stage for Habakkuk's initial concern. So he's initially frustrated over Judah's sin. So Judah is is God's people. They're supposed to be serving the one true God. They have Jerusalem, the city of David. They have the temple with the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence with the Ten Commandments in there. Um, that you know their, their kings are from the line of King David, and God promised you will always have a man on my throne. King David was a man after God's own heart, kind of represents that righteous line, but. They're anything but righteous. They're into idolatry. They've turned from God. And so the prophet has risen up and he's grieved that God has allowed his people to turn away from him, turn to idolatry and and walk away from him. God, how can you not punish them is what he's basically asking. And then God responds and he tells him, look, I'm gonna punish them. I'm just, I'm God. I The, the evil doesn't escape me. I'm gonna punish them, but here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm going to take the sinful nation of Babylon and I'm going to use them to punish Judah just like you know that I should. And then the vast uh, majority of uh, of this next, you know, of the book really is chapter 1 verse 12 through chapter 2 verse 20 and this is Habakkuk's second dilemma. And this is what he spends his most time on. How in the world could God use an even more sinful nation than Judah? To punish Judah. So Babylon is um, a sinful nation. They don't have any covenants. They don't have any righteous people. They, 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 don't, they aren't in relationship with God in any way. They are a totally idolatrous nation and a sinful one. They go out crushing and killing nations, stealing from people, murdering people, forcing people to pay tribute, doing all kinds of evil things. They trust in their own strength, their own military strength. They worship their own gods. They think that they are something. And then biblically speaking, Babylon is the prototype for really anti-God and anti-Christ. Remember what happens at the Tower of Babel, where we get Babylon. It's the nations uniting together to reject God, to disobey God, and to form their own nation. And so the nation of Babylon um, epitomizes this of self-dependency, of idolatry, and a rejection of God. And so Habakkuk is torn how these people could do this. And so then God goes on in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, um, says what he's going to do. And, but he says this, Babylon is going to judge Judah, but then God's going to judge them. Babylon, who trusts in themselves, they're going to be destroyed. But listen to this, rest assured, the just shall live by faith. And that is a key verse we will reflect on in the future. Babylon, who trusts in themselves and in their own gods, they're going to be destroyed. But the people of Israel who live by 
faith, those who are just, they will be saved. The just will live by faith. So then God moves into chapter two, um, verses six through 20. And this is hilarious. God's dealing with this nation that thinks they're big and they're bad and that they're strong and that their gods are greater than the other gods um, and that they are something. So God starts taunting Babylon and he even pronounces five woes on them for their destruction. And so he, he, he kind of mocks them, makes fun of them. This holy sovereign God is going to punish this empire. So he says, woe to the plunderer and the extortioner because Babylon loved plundering nations and then forcing tribute on them. So they would just attack a nation and take all their stuff and then force them to keep paying them. Kind of like the mob or something like that. Two, they would pronounce woe on those who build an empire on unjust game, which is kind of a similar thing that they would go and and they're trying to build up their own empire by just fighting other people and, and destroying other people. Woe to those who build a city with bloodshed and injustice. So not only is Babylon taking things from people, they're taking lives. They're killing people. They're killing nations. They're using unjust wars to just get what they want. He says, woe to the violent and those who degrade others. They think everyone is beneath them, that they're better than everybody, that they can kill and take and destroy who they want. They have a lower view of everyone else than themselves, and they're going to reap what they sow. And then finally, he pronounces a woe to those who trust in false gods. Those false gods aren't going to save their empire. God, Yahweh, is flexing his muscles, saying Babylon thinks there's something. I'm going to show them who the true God is. It is me. And then finally, we end the book of Habakkuk with chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Habakkuk begins this whole book by questioning God. He doesn't understand, and he ends it with a hymn of praise, a, a, a prayer to God, trusting in him. So Habakkuk praises God for his mighty deeds, and he asks God to show up again, much like he did uh, in Egypt. Then in verses 3 through 7, God promises his glorious presence among God's people. This is a theophany, meaning that God is going to appear among his people. He's going to show up to them. The nations are going to tremble. The mountains are going to crumble. I mean, God describes his presence as one that just makes everyone shake, and it's reminiscent of Exodus. He says plagues are going to follow him, just like the plagues that showed up in Exodus. And remember, remember, just as God pronounced judgment against the gods of Egypt, he's pronouncing judgment against the gods of Babylon. God is going to personally show up and bring victory for his people. Then in verses 8 through 15, God describes himself as a divine warrior who's going to deliver his people. He's not just showing up as anybody, but as a warrior. He's going to destroy the wicked oppressor and save his people. Verse 13 says this, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. He's a warrior, he saves his anointed, he crushes them, the, the enemy, and in fact, he strips them bare. He exposes them, he puts shame on them. And Habakkuk, at this description of God, is overcome with fear and all. And then finally, Habakkuk ends his book resolving to trust in God regardless of the circumstances around him. That you know, there's, there's no fruit on the vine, the, the fig trees don't have figs on them, things aren't going good, but I'll trust in God anyways. How was that? That was good. That was a really good overview. 
And, I'm, uh, I'm going to stop talking now for a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. And and and, and great job. And like I guess it's just it's three chapters, but it's just rich. And um, here's the thing, and I, I think this is where we're just segueing, and maybe this won't be as long an episode, but it doesn't have to. Be. Um, there are some really powerful truths that come out of this for us. Mm-hmm. So now that we've gone through this, and you're going, okay, what does that mean? Yeah. All right. Here's what it means. Number one, we learn God's ways are not our ways. Yeah. All right. It bothered Habakkuk. Couldn't understand how he was. God was going to deal with the wicked Judah. Judah needed to be punished. Judah needed to be straightened up because they were sinful, mm-hmm. really, really bad. And, you know, preachers, we, we, we don't like unrighteousness. And then God says, I'm going to use Babylon. He couldn't handle that. But here's the point. It doesn't matter whether or not you can handle it. God's ways are not our ways. Yeah. And that's a good thing because when you can't figure it out, don't worry about it. God's already got it figured out. Mm-hmm. So there's a great lesson there. God's ways are not our ways, and be thankful for that. Yeah. Okay. Number two, God is always right on time. Yeah. Always right on time. He said, "I'm going to show up. I know you. Your son. When, when's this going to happen? I'm coming. I'm coming, and I'm going to use the Babylonian army. I'm coming. So hang on, and then I'm going to let the Babylonian army have it. Hang on. It's going to take a while. Yeah. But I'll." Trust me. And it took a while. It did. Like, let's say the scholars are right, and Habakkuk prophesied this from like 609 to 600. Well, they didn't destroy Jerusalem till 587. Yep. And then God didn't punish Babylon uh, until 533 BC or something like that yep. when Persia took over them. So you're talking about, like, in human times, a Se- decently 70, long time. years. Yeah. But God's, which is nothing to God. But that's the point is God says, I'm always right on time. Mm-hmm. So just trust me with the timing. So I think that that's a powerful truth and lesson that's good. That, that we can learn from this. And I'm sure there's a whole lot of others. Maybe you've got some ones mm-hmm. uh, that are in here, but um, but there's some really, really, really good things. Is one of the greatest scriptures, like there's, of course, the, the just shall live by faith. Let, let's just like rest in that for a second. Okay, so here here it says that the, then the Lord answered me and said this this passage of scripture in chapter two is awesome. Mm-hmm. He has said everything he wants to say to God, and he actually says in chapter two, verse one, "I'm going to stand my watch, set myself on the rampart, watch to see what he'll say to me." In other words, he said, "I'm going to shut up now and listen just to God." Wait on God, yeah. And God speaks and says, "Write the vision." And make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Now that's mm-hmm. where I said God is always on time. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So that's where I got this. God is right on time. So God's mm-hmm. saying it's going to happen. There's also a really strong leadership principle here about when God gives you a vision, write it down, and then you got to share it with the people. Mm-hmm. So by the way, if you're a leader in church or leader in business, Write your vision down. Whatever it is you see is the next step, is the next thing that needs to happen. Write it down, lay it out, and then present it before the people. That's how that how it works. Okay, but then verse four, behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. He's not right, he's wrong, he's sinful. But the just, the righteous, the saved people, we would mm. say, shall live by faith. That is so good. So God is... Um, comparing and contrasting God's people with Babylon. So we noted how Babylon are these arrogant people. They trusted in themselves. So they thought we are mighty. 
we're stronger than everybody. I mean, they're just just wiping through nations at this point, doing what they want, taking what they want. So they've got this built-up arrogance, and God is promising people who live with that kind of arrogance, they're going to die. I'm going to bring destruction on them. But here's the difference. Those sinful people will be destroyed, but the just shall live by faith. God's people are marked by something different, not an arrogant trust in themselves, but those who are just, both declared just by God and actually live just, live a life of faith in God. And I think it even uh, uh, works with Judah too, because Judah is all oftentimes trying to work this syncretism that they worship these idols, but they'll still go sacrifice to God. And so they think they can get away with it. And God is saying, no, no, no. The just is going, the just will live by faith. Sinful Babylon's going to be punished, but Judah's going to be punished too. People who just try and bring sacrifices to me and do the bare religious minimum and try to appease me like I'm some wooden God that someone has built in their house, it's not going to work. The true just aren't those who bring these base sacrifices. They have faith in me. God is laying this principle down that then, like we talked about, becomes the principle for Paul in both Romans and Galatians. So Romans or Galatians are um, kind of the, the height of Paul's discussion on justification by faith, not justification by the law. And so he pulls from Habakkuk and quotes him twice here with this quote, the just shall live by faith. And I think what's so important here is Paul is not inventing something new. Jesus is not inventing something new. Jesus is coming to bring the principle that has always been true. Old Testament saints and New Testament saints have been saved in the same way. Always by faith. Always by faith. Yeah, by grace. grace. That's right. All right, so this passage, that verse 4, Habakkuk 2.4, is one of the foundational scriptures of the New Testament of salvation. Now you know why we like this little book. That's right. This little book is chock full. We're not done yet. So that right there, right in the center of the book, that's important. Mr. Historical Church Father guy, that's you, Evan. Oh, boy. Tell us why this scripture is so powerful in the Reformation. Yeah, this scripture is so powerful in the Reformation because the the Roman Catholic Church had essentially built a works-based system of salvation. And so the idea was um, it, it wasn't based on faith in God. It was based on works that either I did or that the church did for me. So you would participate in the the sacramental life of the church, if you will. And they had this belief of, in Latin, it's called ex opere operata, which is by the work of the thing. And so here's what I mean. Um, They believe that without any real faith, any good disposition in the person, any trust in God, if I had sin, I could go and pay a priest to say a mass for me, which meaning that he would go through the entire liturgy and he would partake of Holy Communion. I wouldn't even partake of it. I wouldn't even be there. I wouldn't even believe in God, but I paid in him to do it. And as long as he does it for me, my sins are forgiven. Or I am in sin. And instead of just going God to forgive me, to forgive me because I have faith in him, I could not even really trust in God. But if I uh, give money to the church as an act of penance, uh, and that's what we call indulgences, and I just pay a little money here, well, I'll be absolved of my sins. And so there becomes this, um, this sort of, 
and, and even for those like Martin Luther had a guilty conscience, there's no real uh, safety in my sins. But I'm always having to go and do these things to try and um, earn my salvation. I have to. I, I can't just trust in Christ. I have to give money. And the church is <clears throat> promoting this. The church is promoting this. Uh, you know, I, I can't just trust in Christ. I have to pay this priest to. Uh, do this work for me. You know, I can't just trust in Christ. I have to go do this this good thing as an act of penance. So I couldn't just be repentant in my heart and ask for forgiveness. I had to do acts of penance to earn my forgiveness. So what does Martin Luther do? He's the guy. So Martin Luther comes along and he has a, a great awareness of his own sin <laughs> and his own sinfulness. They, they said that he would bother his confessor because he would confess for hours. And then you'd go away, and then he'd remember something else sinful he did, and then he'd have to go do that. <laughs> and you know, because the the Roman Catholics in in that day had a strict idea of penance as well, which is that you had to confess literally every sin. Like you couldn't just confess your own sinfulness or the sins you had, you know, in your heart, and God receive it as all of your sins. But it was like if you remembered another one you committed, you had to go confess it, or else you weren't forgiven. So Martin Luther is overcome by all of these terrible works and all these things you had to go do and all this money you have to go pay and all of these horrible things that it couldn't just be my faith in Christ. It had to be all these works that I did. And he comes along and says, no, 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 no. We are not justified by our works. We're not justified by the law. We're not justified by doing works of penance or by paying money or by what. We are justified by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Our he confidence, is the only mediator. Yeah, our confidence is not in the works, in the Catholic Church, in the penance, in the indulgences. Our confidence to be made right with God, to be saved, is in Christ alone. That's right. What Jesus did is enough. That's exactly. what we're saying. I trust him and him alone. I don't have to trust in anything else. That's right. And that's enough. That I'm, I can't be saved without my faith. I can't go pay a priest to do something you know, for me but that my faith alone is good enough. I don't have to do acts of penance, which I pay money to the church for God to give me the salvation. The salvation doesn't come from my wallet. It's free. It may be better stated, my faith in his act alone. That's right. That's Uh, right. Yeah, my faith in his act alone is enough. Exactly. So that's why this verse is so powerful here. Mm -hmm. It has, in its context, yeah, it means one thing, but it was used by the church by Paul to fight the legalism of the first century, by Martin Luther to fight the legalism of the Catholic Church in the 16th 16th century. That's right. So pretty powerful. Foundational. All right, here's another thing. When you go through this Bible, uh, uh, this book rather in the Bible, um, you, you get to where, um, and I wish you had another Bible, but there's an eschatological passage in here. Where is that at where? Um, Let me pull it up on my phone at least Man. it's really towards the end it's the theophany towards the end of chapter three uh, man i wish i had my other bible because i had it had it put in my bible um i should have brought my like physical bible in here that's what i'm talking about i have my other one here i'm using but there's actually a scripture that talks about the future um you look for it and see if you can find it here's the other thing um that i love and it's the last by the way, chapter three is a song. It is. It is a song. It, yeah. it, 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 can I use this word? I love this word. It says a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, prophet on Shigianoth. <laughs> Shigianoth. Don't you love that? We don't know if that means like it's like a dirge. 
like a type of song, like the way that you're supposed to sing it? It's a musical notation, probably uh-huh. indicating that the song is to be sung with emotion and a sense of victory. That's awesome. Okay. And because it's in contrast to the doom and gloom of the woes yeah. <laughs> in chapter two. So it's a, it's a song. But when you get to the end, I love it because it says, though the fig tree may not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Everything's bad. There's no, then he says, yet I will rejoice Mm. in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And I'm going to do a little preach right here. That's when, and when I preach this, I preach, you got to have a yet praise. Yeah. And a yet praise is things are going bad. You know, the word yet means still. Mm-hmm. So things are going got bad, Lord, but I'm still going to praise you. Yeah, I don't have enough. There's more month and money, but I'm still going to praise you. The doctor gave me a bad report, but I'm still going to praise you. I don't know how I'm going to meet the ends, meet, 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 meet what I, the, the, the deadline. I don't have it, but I'm still going to praise you. Mm. My, my kids aren't living right, but I'm still going to praise you. My marriage is in trouble, but I'm still going to praise you. That's the good. devil breathe, is breathing down the back of my neck, but I'm still going to praise you. See, that's the thing is what you're going through doesn't necessarily kill your faith, and it shouldn't kill your praise. That's good. And so that's what I love about Habakkuk is when when he worked his way through the wise. I don't know. See, when things hit you and they knock you down, you, Lord, why is this happening to me? What have I done wrong? We go through all that, and then we're working our way through. But what happens is we finally reach that point where we say, you know what? I'm going to trust God. I don't know why God's working. His ways are not my ways, but he's always on time, and I'm going to trust God. And as you begin to trust God, then you get to say, you know what? I can still praise him. That's really I'm not going to let it kill my praise. I'm not going to let it kill my worship. I'm not going to lay out a church Sunday. I'm going to go to church Sunday. I might have tears streaming down my face, but I'm still going to praise you. That's really I, good. I, my heart may be broken, but I'm still going to praise you. I have more questions than I do answers, but I'm still going to praise you. I've got more problems than I do solutions, but I'm still going to praise you. And that's what that says to us. Mm. Now, i got to preach on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're preaching Sunday or well, next no, Sunday now. No, but that's, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. That'd be a good one. That's what I love about Habakkuk. It, it ends mm-hmm. with, you know, it's down here. It's so it's real doom and gloom, but it ends up here saying, yeah, I can still praise you. God's got this. That's good. You know, something that I really like about, about this book is uh, every time I'm in the Old Testament, I'm looking for Jesus some way, somehow. It's like, where, where's Waldo? I'm going, where can I find him? And I think in this one, I do think there's a quotable verse that I want to quote. But more than that, I think the story of Habakkuk is the story of God in general. When, when we say that, that the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ, we mean that in a different ways. And we mean that in different ways. One of the ways that, I, that we mean that is God often acts in these cycles or these kind of particular, these particular ways. And so I, I think one of the ways that we see this is um, basically Israel is sinful, and their punishment is to be judged by a nation more sinful than them. Then God promises to judge that nation and to set Israel free and to bring them back to them. And this is what this is consistently what God is doing. I mean, this is always what God is like. Think about like Adam and Eve. Everything's good in the garden, in the garden, but then they sin and they are expelled from the garden. But then God brings a promise, I'm going to restore my relationship to, with you. I think about you know Abraham, everything is um, going, going bad, right? The nations, in a sense, have been expelled and, and dispersed. 
in uh, in the the Tower of Babel, but then God promises Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a land. He leads him out of a land of paganism, and he promises to bring you to a promised land. Then uh, much more clearly, uh, Israel is trapped in bondage to Pharaoh. There is a much more sinful man and nation that has them in bondage. But God shows up, uh, is the Passover lamb, provides the Passover lamb for them, and then God sets them free and brings them into the land. And then now what do we have again? We have Israel who is sinful, and God promises, um, I'm going to send a more sinful nation to judge you and to punish you in Babylon. But then I'm going to destroy Babylon, and I'm going to set you free. And fast forward to Jesus' day, uh, physically speaking, they are in bondage to Rome. The Pharisees are much like Judah in the day. They're not worshiping idols, but they are trying to relate to God in this sort of mechanistic way. Can I obey the law? And then Jesus shows up announcing the kingdom. But then look at what happens spiritually. Humanity falls into their own sin, and how does God punish them? He hands them over to a ruler more evil than they are named Satan, that we are in the kingdom of darkness. God calls the Pharisees children of Satan, that we are dominated by sin and Satan, but yet God promises freedom for his people. And so Christ comes and he is our Passover lamb, dies on the cross for us and leads us into freedom and conquers that enemy and actually judges that enemy who had been used to punish us. So what God is doing here in Habakkuk and in the story of Israel is what he's been doing and then what he ultimately would do in Christ. And then looking forward, this is what Jesus will do in completion, that now we're in the that already, but not yet, that we are living uh, in a sense, right, in Babylonian captivity, that we are in a world full of sinfulness and evil, that you and I live in a country, uh, you know, where we're, we've legalized abortion, that, gosh, those poor Christians in Afghanistan live in a country dominated by the Taliban, but there is coming a day in which Christ will come back to judge the sinful nations. He will come back to finally judge Satan and, and to destroy him and put him in hell forever and to make all things right. This is the cycle, the story of what God is doing again and again and again, that we're handed over to a sinful ruler because of our sin. He judges that ruler, and he sets his people free. I'll be so glad when that cycle is finally one oh day broken. Oh, my gosh, broken, yes. <laughs> and it's all over. That's really, really good, Evan. That's a great thing. Here's, one, here's the scripture. I knew I'd find it. Uh, it's chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's great. That's your eschatological uh, passage that mm-hmm. really looks forward to the future. Uh, really, really, I think, will be in the millennial reign when the when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, mm-hmm. and uh, and and definitely in the new heavens and the new earth, mm-hmm. when when everybody will know the Lord, and it'll cover everyone everywhere. So you want to have a little fun? Are we are we basically done? Let me. I, I, mean, I, got a few, I actually got a few more. Uh, well, bring us some okay. more. Then. Yeah, bring them on. Uh, let me let me uh, show you this verse that I think is maybe a bit more explicit. Chapter three, verse thirteen says, "You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck." So it says, "You've come to save your people," and this is in the context of God coming down, and that's why, like, the mountains are trembling and the nations are trembling. I think God coming down to save his people, 
we know ultimately is in Christ. God shows up uh, as a theophany, but as a man, as the man, and as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to save his people. It says you've come to save your anointed. I, I, I don't know. Your Bible's different than mine. Uh, mine actually says you went forth for the salvation of your people for salvation with your anointed. Which I think is pointing to Jesus to Christ. Jesus Christ. See, that's anointed. what I was going to bring up. I don't know if you were, but you know, if it says to your anointed, then that would be Israel mm-hmm. or Judah. But if it's with your anointed, you're, you're coming to save your people, Judah. That's right. With your anointed, I'm like you. I think there. I think that's where. I think it's. I think you it's find both. Jesus. I you, think you find. Yeah. I think that's a, a an image of Christ. There. There's a way in which Jesus is anointed and he's representing Israel. That he, in a sense, bears the exile of Israel on the cross, the punishment of Israel, well, the punishment of us on a cross, and yet God. I, I, you know, it, obviously we're using prophetic language. Can I super hardcore air quotes saves Jesus? And here's what I mean: He died in a tomb, but then he was raised up three days later yeah, for but us. He, but this is messianic. He was the exactly. Messiah. That's why I really feel like it's him because he is the Messiah, the Christ, yep. the Anointed One. And now we are the Anointed Ones in Christ, who ultimately God has saved and will save. It's I think it's both and. Yeah. And then he says, you crush the leader of the house of the wicked. I I think back to Genesis chapter three, in which God promises Eve, you're going to crush the head of the serpent. Seed, the seed, your seed will crush. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent, which is what Christ did. And he says, you strip him from foot to neck. I I think about Jesus saying that he has come to bind the strong man to then plunder his house. That's exactly what Jesus came to do, to bind the power of Satan and then to take back who Satan has stolen from him. So I, I, I think this is a picture picture of, of exactly what, what Jesus has come to do. That's good. Um, something else that I was thinking is just the simple promise. Jesus is going to punish sin, and he's going to deliver the righteous in a, in a general way. And, and this book, I just happened to read it, really spoke to me when all of the news of Afghanistan came out in the sense that you just, you just in, na- in national news, bear the weight of like, this is so wrong. This is so terrible. And then knowing that there are Christians in that nation who will be heavily persecuted, yeah. and it brings that comfort that like I really I I really do want every member of the Taliban to accept Christ. I I honestly do. And yet there's this other sense that says for those who don't God will not turn a blind eye, but there will be righteous judgment on all of the unrighteousness in our world today. That as much as it grieves us that things happen that are wrong, they don't get the last word. God does. Yeah, and that and it can apply to you personally. Apply to things that have happened to you. Apply to the weight of this world. Apply to if uh, you know if a boss or a company or a whoever you know if if injustice has happened to you, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and He will make all things right. Yeah, He's and that's the righteous judge. That should bring deep comfort to our soul. Yeah, to our souls, I should say. Um, you know, there's there's a number of uh, various things. You know, God cares for His children. Um, he's not distant, but he relates to his uh, believers in, uh, in in a personal type of way. Um, he's sovereign over the nations. Um, I think something that's interesting uh, is that he is holy, that the, the peoples of the earth should be silent before him, and that even as uh, you know, Habakkuk has, is full of awe and fear in his psalm, when we encounter this holy, powerful, righteous God, it should, in a sense, bring us to our knees, that it should produce in us this reverent 
perfect fear of who our God is, that he yeah. is loving and wonderful, but he is powerful. He is just. powerful, yeah. You yeah. saw that. Let's have fun now. Oh, no. Did you know there are, there are women's shoes in this in this book? Oh, my goodness. There are. There are women's shoes in this book. In, in verse 14 in chapter 3, it says, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high heels. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it says. Stilettos. There are stilettos in the book of... <laughs> They're in the book of Habakkuk, there's stilettos, high heels. Oh, my goodness. If you're down south, you don't say heels, you say heels. Heels. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. We had such a serious one that I had to throw that, that in. That is so funny. <laughs> That's like the uh, the disciples who uh, rode in a Honda because they were all in one accord. They're all in one accord. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and Peter was the smallest man in the Bible because he slept on his watch. Joshua didn't have a uh, mother or father who's the son of none. That's true. That's true. That's exactly right. I don't have any more. You don't have any more. I'm fresh out. That's all I had. But well, the other short guy in the Bible was Nehemiah. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> we lost it. So we lost. <laughs> oh my goodness! This is completely not Bible related. No. But um, what do the movies Titanic and The Sixth Sense have in common? The movies Titanic. I have no idea. I see dead people. Oh, oh, you, you missed it. You're going to have to find it. No, don't hit it. Don't. Okay, it's too late now. You got to cheer on that one. There we there go. There it is. Need a little, little drum shot, rim shot. Well, do you have anything else? No, I think we've pretty well covered I it. I think we just absolutely destroyed an otherwise just really great pod, podcast yeah. <laughs> right there with the high heels. Well, uh, all the ladies are loving that stiletto. Uh, <laughs> They're going to have tell. See, I'll tell everybody there are stilettos oh, in the Bible, the high heels. Well, we want to encourage you, go home, read the book of Habakkuk. It's really, really good. It's really beneficial. Um, go and read it. And then, as always, rating, give us a rating, uh, review us, all those good things. Send it to somebody who needs it, and we will see you back in a couple of weeks. 